So I love those last two songs. Uh, I'll tell you why. The one before that, the song called Authority. You know why it's, why it's so good and why it's so stirring? Because it has this, <clears throat> it has an anthem quality to it. It's more than just, it's an anthem quality because it, it is about acknowledging uh, a power that the world cannot stand up to. As we continue with this series on Revelation, I'm just, <clears throat> every week as I'm preparing the message and praying through it and writing things and then deleting them and moving them around and editing them, I'm struck by how, <clears throat> how much relevance there is to today, not because Revelation is a book of prophecy. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about these letters to these churches and the things that Jesus says, you're doing this well, but you're not doing this well. And I can see in each one of these letters that there are things for grace life to hear and to learn. But this week, we're talking about how some churches seem to idolize compromise. So start with this. Every person desires some sort of community that embraces or affirms your personal values. A community that might enhance your opportunities for what you see as success or what you think would bring happiness. <clears throat> and it's, it's a natural desire that we have to live in a world or a society that affirms our core values and protects what's important to us, our family, our faith, our success. It's why people often will move from one place to another. They're looking for something better. It's important why people, it's the reason why people maybe sometimes change jobs. It's the reason why many people choose one church over another. It's why so many people often become too passionate about politics. It's why some people volunteer or donate to charity. And you know, the bottom line is people of all faiths, yes, even atheists, have cultural backgrounds political leanings, whether they be for big government or small. Everyone embraces some sort of moral values. Maybe you're pro-life or pro-choice. Everyone has some sort of economic philosophy they prefer, capitalism or socialism. Everybody has passionate opinions about what they believe society should look like. For true followers of Jesus, the gift of faith gives us a desire, hopefully, for a culture that embraces our kingdom values. And we can advocate for them. We can fight for them. We can even vote for them. We proclaim them. And hopefully, we think maybe we can change the culture. But here's one thing that's certain. After thousands of years of human history, here's what we know for sure. The world isn't interested and won't be until Jesus returns in authority. Until then, here's what this world will do. No matter what your passions are, the world will constantly pressure you to compromise how you live or what you believe in exchange for success or acceptance. So what are we supposed to do in the meantime? What does Jesus want us to do until he returns? I'm going to read you this letter to the church, and it's the longest one in the whole uh, seven letters is the longest one by far. It's Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. It's to the church in Theatira. And to the angel of the church in Theatira, write, 
the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, and patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast, or if you allow me, the scripture actually, the language says, only continue to hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's a lot there. So I'm going to skip most of it. No, I'm going I'm <clears> to <throat> try to go through most of it as I can because it's all important stuff. Historically speaking, Thyatira was a guild city. Let me explain what that meant. First of all, people that lived there made stuff. It was a manufacturing hub in Asia Minor, Asia Minor in the Roman Empire in, in the first century, made up of pretty much a community of trade workers. Thyatira was dominated politically and culturally by these trade guilds or syndicates, if you will, of people grouped together by their specific skill or trade or business. Leather crafters would be together in a guild, clothing and linen people in a guild, potters, coppersmiths, silversmiths, blacksmiths, textiles, construction materials. Each one had their own guild. There's a great reference in the book of Acts about a woman who was from Thyatira, who was part of the lucrative, well-known purple dye guild. That's why I wore purple today. No, I, that was an accident. I didn't do it on purpose. But... There was this guild of people who worked with purple dye. There was an indigenous plant that had coloring in its roots that was only available there, and people loved purple clothing or purple dye, and, and her name was Lydia, and it's from Acts chapter 16. It's great. And one who, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention, opened her heart to pay attention. You know what that means? Gave her ears to hear to what was said by Paul. And she was baptized in her household as well. What we can speculate with pretty good certainty is her and her family and her house became the foundation for the church in Thyatira. But there's something going on in that city that's not as good. It's these guild temples. Whatever your trade, your membership in that corresponding guild was mandatory if you wanted acceptance or success in your business. In return, the members of the guild were protected, their interests, and being a part of a guild is financially, <clears throat> culturally, and politically very lucrative. The other thing you got when you were part of a guild, you became a part of a fellowship and a community, which was critical to survival in first century Rome. It was very hard to survive isolated. 
But there is a very sinister side to these guilds. Each guild, whether you're a blacksmith, silversmith, clothing, whatever, each one had its own exclusive pagan rituals and feasts to their gods that included orgies and rampant drunkenness. These guilds actually became renowned throughout the region for being so full of debauchery and immorality, it even made the Romans blush. The problem is you had to participate in these parties, these feasts, to be accepted. And a Christian, for example, like Lydia, refused to participate in a guild's pagan rituals. They were shunned, ostracized, businesses destroyed. It was the ultimate cancel culture. And Jesus mentions this woman, Jezebel. I doubt that it was actually her name, or maybe she took on the name. I don't know, but I don't think so. But Jesus mentions her as a very influential false prophetess who encouraged Christians to integrate into these guilds, including their feasts. You guys remember how Jesus linked the Nicolaitans by name to Balaam, destroyer of people in the Old Testament? Well, he does the same thing here. He links this woman to the most evil Old Testament queen in Israel's history. Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab. He was the most idolatrous and the worst king in Israel's history. 1 Kings 18, you can go there and you can read about the story. It's pretty bad. Ahab and Jezebel. So imagine, right, you're reading this aloud, this letter from Jesus to your church in community. And Jesus, and let's pretend like you're Jezebel, and Jesus calls you out by comparing you to the most evil woman in the Old Testament. So who was this false teacher who Jesus names Jezebel? We learned about her in our study in 1 John. Some of you might remember. She was what we call a Gnostic feminist. She was seducing Christians, married or single, into these immoral guild feasts by using temple prostitutes. She taught that Jesus would want them to be a part of these temple guilds. It's part of the Great Commission to go in and be a part of the people. And as you participate in their activities with them, you can share Jesus. I mean, it seemed odd that she would be so successful in convincing people, right? She taught women that they should avoid marriage and childbearing. Jesus calls these things the deep things of Satan. Jesus says to Pergamos, remember our previous one from last week, he says to Pergamos, you follow the Nicolaitans in Thyatira. He says, some of you. But here, it's not some. We see in this passage, it was the vast majority had embraced the teachings of Jezebel. Somehow, this woman had convinced the Christians there in Thyatira to be comfortable, even embrace guild idolatry and immorality. The church in Thyatira had fully compromised their theology and their sexual purity by integrating into these guilds. It's a sad state this church is in. I mean, how could, how could true, actual Christians who had heard uh, the gospel preached by the apostles, how could they fall for this lady? Well, maybe they weren't Christians after all. Maybe they never had ears to hear. So that's the history, history of this passage. Let's look at the spiritual side of this. This is the church that compromised. First, I want you, this, this church is opposite of the one in Ephesus that we studied in the very first week of these letters. So Jesus starts off by describing himself as the Son of God with eyes like burning fire and feet like bronze. Each letter, by the way, begins with a description that he actually called himself in chapter 1. So this one here, he says, 
I am the, God, uh, the Son of God with eyes like burning fire and feet like bronze. Remember a couple weeks ago we learned about, or it was last week, about the Jesus, the two-edged sword. I think the name of the sermon was Two Jesuses. Well, this is also a judgment Jesus. <laughs> so now the Christians of Thyatira were known for something Ephesus struggled with. He says, look, you've done a great job with love and mercy and compassion and serving others. Remember, Ephesus had lost their first love. They were good at at ignoring the false prophets and naming them and casting them out, but they didn't love people. The church in Thyatira is different. Feeding the poor, caring for widows and orphans, loving and helping their neighbors. Jesus affirms them for all of this. He says, your ministry of love and service has grown. It was your first love, and now it's an even greater love. Unlike Ephesus, their love for serving and helping people had not faded. It's kind of like our Grace, Reco Grace Life Recovery Ministry and our food pantry that Lisa and her team started with a few volunteers and a metal cabinet a few years ago, and it grew into what it is now. You know, I pray Jesus would say the same thing about Grace Life in 50 years. I hope Grace Life never loses its first love. I hope Jesus can say, you have loved people and you continue to love them more than you used to. But then there's the rebuke. Remember how Ephesus was commended for spotting and rejecting false prophets like Jezebel? Thyatira was the opposite. They had fully compromised, embracing this Jezebel's immorality and idolatry. And then Jesus goes through the judgment he will bring upon Jezebel and her children. He makes it clear, Jesus does, that his church cannot compromise by participating in the pagan immoral guild feasts. And he says, I've given Jezebel and her children, which really means followers, those who accepted her teaching, not her actual kids. Gave Jezebel and her children time and warnings through apostolic letters and visits and apostle sending representatives. Gave them time and warning, repent, stop this. But they never repented. So he promises to judge her and her followers with sickness. They will be judged with an illness. Now, you can deduce pretty easily what kind of illness this probably was. Whatever it was, it became a deadly epidemic among those participating in the immoral guild feasts. And it seems harsh, right? But really, you know what this is? This is actually Jesus protecting his church, ensuring the deep things of Satan don't ensnare the faithful. This isn't a vindictive judge, Jesus. It's a loving shepherd saying, I'm going to protect my flock from the things that they may not be able to resist on their own. Just as a shepherd would slay a bear or a wolf that threatens the flock, Jesus will intervene when he needs to, to judge evil and to preserve those who have ears to hear his voice and follow him. That's what's happening in Theatira. And then he says, listen, those of you that are faithful... Those of you that have not followed Jezebel, the faithful remnant in Thyatira who has ears to hear, those of you that withstood her influence. By the way, what do you think Lydia had to do when she was given ears to hear Paul preach the gospel and it says she was saved and baptized in her whole house? What do you think she had to do with the Purple Dye Guild when she returned to Thyatira after she was given ears to hear? She had a tough decision too, didn't she? Jesus says, listen, for those of you that are faithful, I have no other burden or command to give you. Just keep doing what you're doing. Love others and stay faithful to me. 
All these guilds, the temptation to compromise, you're doing great. Just keep doing what you're doing. Wow, wouldn't you love to hear those words? Those words make this letter to Thyatira something Grace Life should aspire to. Wouldn't it be great to hear Jesus say, listen, you got a lot of things going on, but you're loving people and you're staying faithful to the gospel. Just keep doing what you're doing. Don't have to add anything else. Grace Life, I've got nothing to add. Just keep loving others and remain faithful to truth as you have been. That's what he says to the faithful in Thyatira. There's not many left. Then he makes a promise about a righteous guild that is to come. So don't you think the faithful in Thyatira were discouraged by the culture there? Don't you think they were discouraged by the grip the pagan guilds had on their city and their society? Don't you think these Christians desired to change how the guilds ran? To make them more equitable and more fair and more righteous? But, you know, Jesus doesn't tell them to take over the culture and change the guilds. He says, endure them until the day he returns and sets things right. He promises the faithful will rule with the Son of God. By the way, Son of God, this is the only time in Revelation that phrase occurs, right there. All of this promise that he says is a direct link to Psalm chapter 2. Watch this, it's beautiful. I will tell the decree, the Lord says to me, you are my son, there's the son of God. I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Doesn't that sound familiar to what he just said the promise would be? This is the link. He doesn't promise the faithful in Thyatira, don't worry, stick with it, pretty soon you'll take over all the guilds and you'll change them. No, he says, you be faithful and you will overcome. This is 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5 again. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes? But he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is what Jesus is calling the faithful to do. Stick with it. You stay faithful, loving priests. And when I return, I'll judge the guilds, and together we will become a new righteous guild. I will be your morning star, he says. I will be your king. And this world will finally become everything those with ears to hear hope it could be. It's a lot of theology there, isn't it? Let's look at the personal side of this. I want to talk about the, the temptation to compromise our priesthood. This was the sermon preview this week. We've been given no other burden from Jesus but to remain faithful in a hostile world until the Son of God returns. So why do we insist on carrying burdens and obsessions we don't need? So first, we understand, right, as a church, we at Grace Life, or frankly, any of the church, should never compromise the gospel to try to make it somehow more appealing to the world. There is no power in that kind of gospel. And while Grace Life as a church may not be tempted to compromise, to become part of an immoral society, maybe convinced by some prophetess to do that, but the enemy certainly does use other pressures from this world's guilds to squeeze us into what he thinks we should be. The guilds we face are more like intense cultural peer pressure, social pressures, pressures to blend our faith in with different things that society has given in this new neo-moralism 
Guilds and influences that can easily, if we're not careful, even if they look like they're good ones, can easily become idols. More important than the royal priesthood of proclamation, integrity, and industry. We get pressure from political guilds, both left and right. We get pressure from culture war guilds. We get pressure from career guilds, party life guilds, ritual guilds. And as the church in Thyatira blended their faith with these other guilds, too many Christians are blending their faith with guilds like politics. I'm going to park on this for a minute because there's a lot of, there's a big strong political message in what Jesus is promising the church. He's talking about government. See, I think at this point, whether they be liberals or conservatives, there are too many Christians who value activism more than the royal priesthood. They want to win more than they want to love. Some Christians, for some reason, I guess they don't understand Scripture, they feel destined, even, titled, even entitled to political power and cultural influence in America. Both the left and the right. You know there are Christians who might have a different political view than you that love Jesus, right? It's possible. <laughs> we cannot compromise the royal priesthood. These guilds are not our priesthood, even if it seems like they could be. See, what they do is they'll take some things that we might value and say, look, see, we believe in this, and then they suck you in and blend you into other things, and all of a sudden, you have compromised your royal priesthood of proclamation, integrity, and industry. The fact is, we have one burden. So, <clears throat> a couple questions. What if governments and society somehow, by miracle, believed what we do about Jesus? Better yet, what if suddenly we were in charge? Well, wouldn't you love that? Question, why do we, e this, this frustrates me, why do we even think that we somehow have the political power to fulfill the promises of Psalm chapter 2, 7 through 9 before Jesus returns? Who do you think you are? Jesus says, when I come back, I will make the righteous rule happen. How can we think we can fulfill Psalm 2 without the Son of God personally leading the way with authority? Here's a verse from Hebrews. I love this passage. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See what he says here? Here are two things, peace and holiness. Not peace at the cost of holiness. Not holiness at the cost of peace. He says, here's your burden. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness with which no one will see the Lord. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That's a guild. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy. I can tell you this, I promise you this, Jesus nor the apostles ever commanded the church to seek the establishment of a political power base. Show me. Don't bother, you can't, I already know. <laughs> Jesus and the apostles never said, you should try to put together a guild of your own. Let me tell you something else. There is no such thing as a utopia. There never has been, 
and there never will be until Jesus returns. Now listen, we can and we should, as royal priests, participate in the political process when it's appropriate. But let me just tell you something. Christians gaining political power will not transform lives or love people. Laws don't transform people. Grace and the gospel do alone. Getting your favorite politicians elected or the ones you hate defeated isn't going to transform people's hearts. And look, I understand there are many things Christians can be frustrated with about our country. Frankly, every country since the beginning of time. And of course, we wish we could change society. And of course, we tend to believe, well, if we were in charge, everything and everyone else would be better off. But really, is that what Jesus wants us to do? To run everything? Has he given us the burden of taking over the world's guilds? No, he has one burden. Christians are called to one thing, one burden, the one in this letter, which is to love and to be faithful. And you know what that is? That's the burden of the royal priesthood, to love others and be faithful to God. Jesus commands one thing, to endure the world's guilds without compromise and to love others and proclaim the gospel, but it won't be easy. It might cost you your business. It might cost you some friends. It'll probably cost you some money or your reputation, but you will overcome, and when he returns, he will purify the world. The promise Jesus makes to the faithful is not an earthly government that looks more like what we want. That is not his promise. As a matter of fact, Peter taught us, did he not? Stop trying to change Rome. Remember that? For 20 weeks we talked about it. Or maybe it just felt like 20 weeks. I don't know, but it was a long time. <laughs> the promise Jesus makes to the faithful is an eternal kingdom of heaven when he returns to set things right. Those faithful that we saw in Revelation 1 that he holds in his hands will be part of his righteous guild, characterized by humble, loving, faithful service. He will make us mobile, organic, biblical, and generous royal priests who elevate the glory of Jesus above anything else. You want to impact your culture? Stop compromising your royal priesthood with these outside guilds and just stay faithful to the gospel. And then when Jesus returns, then this world will become the one we've always wanted. Until then, we have one burden. Uncompromised faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, stability, reverence, brotherly affection, and love and service to others. Does that sound familiar? Heavenly Dad, we're, <clears throat> we recognize we are surrounded by guilds. Some of them look righteous. Some of them are clearly not. But they're all around us pressuring us to do something or to be something else than what you want us to be.
And Lord, you recognize it takes discernment and understanding to be able to see these guilds and how to stay away from them. Lord, help us to have the courage to analyze our passions and be able to decipher which ones are in line with the one burden you've given us and which ones are burdens we shouldn't be carrying. And until you return with the rod of iron, the eyes like fire, until you return and set up your righteous guild with us, Lord, keep us faithful. Faithful to the gospel. And keep us loving, humble servants to those around us. And when the world looks at us from the outside, may they be puzzled by our commitment to a God that may not have ears to hear. Lastly, Father, for those who are here today who you maybe are starting to call as the great shepherd for the first time, maybe they are for the first time hearing your voice just as you gave Lydia ears to hear the Apostle Paul preaching. Maybe they're hearing it today for the first time. I pray that you would inspire and transform them with the gospel of grace and mercy and turn them into world priests because we need more. Lastly, we make this commitment. We let go of our dreams of power and influence in the world and submit to your calling to be humble servants to those who need to hear the message of truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Two weeks left here at McCurdy's.